How do you successfully create a new B2B market category? This is the question that many founders ask themselves, but it's a very niche topic and there's just not a lot of content out there from people who've truly taken a shot at creating a new market category. So that's why we've created this show. So at G2, we have over 2,100 different software categories now. As I mentioned, when we started 10 years ago, we only had one, which was CRM software. What we're doing at Timescale is we're redefining the database category. Moneycrawl is pioneering category called data observability. The subcategory interview intelligence is new. We are the leader. There's a lot of category creators that are no longer with us. Uh, they're in the, the great category graveyard somewhere. In each episode, we'll learn the backstory behind the B2B founders' category creation efforts. We'll learn what worked, what didn't, and tactical insights for how you can build a winning category strategy. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now, let's jump in to today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thank you for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Godard Abel, co-founder and CEO of G2, the world's largest and most trusted software marketplace that's raised over $250 million in funding. Godard, I'm a huge fan of G2. I've been using your platform to find software for many years, and I'm super excited to have you here for this conversation and truly honored to have you join. So thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Brett, so much for hosting me, and I love talking category strategy, so look forward to it. Nice. Well, let's dive in. And before we dive deep into category creation and everything that's going on at G2, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Sure. So I've been a SaaS entrepreneur now, I think for about 25 years. And I first started getting involved in you know, enterprise software. Back then, I wasn't quite called cloud, but I you know, started getting involved in building online software in 1998. Helped a little startup, Alianza, acquired by a bigger startup called Niku that went public. The dot-com heyday, I don't know if you remember it. Beginning at 2000, I decided that was a great time to start my own company. And so we started Big Machines. That was a configure price quote software company, eventually bought by Oracle after a long 12-year struggle, became the Oracle CPU cloud. And then we built another one of those, Steelbrick, because after Oracle bought Big Machines, we thought there would be a gap in the Salesforce ecosystem. And then Steelbrick, you know, just two years later, was acquired by Salesforce. We became the Salesforce CPQ and billing Salesforce revenue cloud. So that was an exciting time. And in parallel to that, we'd started G2. My co-founder, Tim, did a great job leading it. And I rejoined the company after Salesforce to scale it you know, into what is now the biggest site where you know software buyers around the world go to discover great apps at uh, g2.com. And 25 years in SaaS, that definitely makes you an OG in the space. And many of the founders that we have listening in, they're, they're first-time founders or they've been doing this for a, a couple of years now. So I'd love to just talk a little bit about that. How has the world changed or how has the software world changed from today compared to 25 years ago when you were just getting started? I'm sure there's a lot of changes, but what are some of those big changes that you've experienced? Well, one, I think the software is getting so much better because I do remember, you might remember, you know, some of those like internet 1.0 apps. Honestly, they were really clunky and really slow. And even I remember when we launched our first startup big machines in 2000, like our users were still on dial-up internet. You know, and there was just so many problems and trying to make, it was a sales application for channel partners, but trying to make that work was almost like impossible because the UI, UX, if you look at it now, it's so clunky and the performance was so bad. And so I think in that sense that there was no AWS, there was no Azure, right? So we had to build our own hosting infrastructure, the colo. So honestly, everything in terms of technology was so much harder and so much worse. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think in that sense, it's such an exciting time to be a SaaS entrepreneur because you know, the tech now, the user experiences we can create are just incredible. Amazing. I love that. And two questions we like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder and as a CEO. First one is, what founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? There's probably a couple. I think in right here in our role of SaaS, I would say it's Mark Benioff, you know, the founder and CEO of Salesforce. And I would say that because frankly, my first couple of startups were built as Salesforce partners in their ecosystem. And my first company, Big Machines, as I mentioned, we struggled for years. We were ahead of the market. And then I do give Mark Benioff a lot of credit for making cloud trusted and popular in the enterprise because, and ultimately also he acquired our second company, but I just felt like I learned so much about Mark, the V2 mom, and he's written a great book behind the cloud and with all kind of his secrets to building a SaaS company, I highly recommend it. So I feel like I've, I've learned so much from Mark and probably the second entrepreneur, maybe a little bit outside of SaaS, at least originally would be Jeff Bezos mm-hmm. and just his philosophies, especially one that I really like 25 years into it is day one. Yeah, I think as an entrepreneur now and all these exciting things happening around AI and all the new opportunities, I, I still think it's truly day one for G2 and for our industry. And I just love the Bezos mindset of, you know, always be innovating for the future. Yeah, two great examples. And I read the Mark Benioff book a couple of years ago, and my big takeaway was just, yeah, declaring war on an enemy and, and creating an enemy and then using that to really galvanize the team and the industry around that enemy. Mark Benioff just did such an amazing job with that. And some of those stunts he pulled, like the fake protests, uh, I think it was an idea that he had that never actually worked out, but he was going to drive a tank at a competitor event. All of that kind of stuff, I think is just very fascinating, especially today when some of the SaaS marketing out there just is very boring, very you know product focused. It was a Super interesting to see how Mark Benioff approached marketing and, and everything he did there. Yeah, I totally agree, Brad. And I think, yeah, he had the whole no software, you know, mantra and those buttons, no software. And I think even he tells a story in that book, how his whole team resisted. They're like, Mark, what do you mean no software? We're like, we're building a software company, you know, but I think he just saw how disruptive the cloud delivery versus Siebel. Siebel was our big enemy. And I've also taken that to heart, frankly, at G2, yeah, the big incumbent in our world is Gartner. And, you know, and I think they have their magic quadrants and, you know, we created some no magic buttons. <laughs> frankly, as software entrepreneurs, we always thought the magic in the quadrant was unfair, you know, because it just takes forever to get in the quadrant, takes forever to be a leader. And so we had passion to change that, you know, and give more real-time insights to software buyers and also help software entrepreneurs validate their apps in real time and you know, not having to wait for an analyst to publish a report. Yeah, love that. And we're going to dive deep on that in a second. One last question for you. If you had to pick one book that really had a major impact on you as a founder, and you can't do the Mark Benioff book, we have to go outside of that. But if we had to pick one book that's had a major impact on you as a founder, what would it be? Probably even as a founder and as a human, I would say Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've had a, a chance to read it, but you know he was famous psychologist, psychiatrist, and obviously had a very painful, sad life story where during World War II, he was in prison, you know, in a Nazi concentration camp. But what's so inspirational is how he used that to really find meaning in his own life and just get through the toughest circumstances. And as founders, oftentimes we think our lives are tough and they are, right? Like I experienced my first company, I was failing for years, almost bankrupt. It feels like my world is ending, but then you just realize you know, Victor Frankl, even in you know, the harshest possible circumstances was still able to find meaning in his life and he ultimately thrive once, you know, he luckily got out. And then just the lessons he takes from that, just for, I think for any human, 
and we all have to persevere in our lives, especially as entrepreneurs. So I've just taken tremendous inspiration for it. And I, I highly recommend, uh, Victor Frankel's book to anyone. Yeah, it certainly puts things in perspective. And that's one of those books that I read probably eight or nine years ago, but I need to go back to it because it's such a good book. It's so powerful. And I, I think, yeah, it's definitely not a business book, but the lessons that he teaches you in that book absolutely apply to building a company and running a company and you know, trying to live a happy life as you do it. So that's a great call out and definitely we'll reread that one. Yeah. Now let's switch gears and let's dive into G2. So can you just take us back to those very, very early days where you were playing around with this idea? What was going on in your head? What were those conversations like between you and your co-founder and what made you decide this is it? This is a problem that I want to dedicate to solve. Yeah. And uh, as I, you know, GT was really the second company we started, you know, just about parallel to Steelbrick. But I remember we were in our, our basement and that time I was living in the Chicago suburbs, we'd built big machines in Chicago and we were just, you know, I had a little bit of a break. And then, you know, from after I left big machines, I had about a year where I didn't really do much. And it was an interesting time, you know, because big machines ultimately was a big success. You know, Oracle acquired it for over 400 million. But I remember as home, I was feeling lonely and kind of just missing something. And I think a lot of my friends couldn't understand. They're like, oh, you just had a great exit. You got a nice house. Like, what are you worried about? You know? And, uh, but I was just kind of after a while, I just realized I missed the purpose of building. And so I got together four of my best friends from building big machines. We got together in my basement. And honestly, we, we first kind of decided, hey, let's build another one. Mm -hmm. And we also decided we wanted to build a peak culture. And one more great book we read at that time was Peak by Chip Conley. I don't know if you've heard about it, but Chip was the founder of Joie de Vivre, an amazing boutique hotel chain in the Bay Area. And then he was the head of hospitality for Airbnb. So obviously a great entrepreneur in his own right, but he wrote this very philosophical book on applying Maslow's hierarchy of need to business cultures mm -hmm. and how a business culture centered on heart and love and caring can ultimately elevate everyone involved in the business to their peak and with inspired employees, evangelical customers, proud investors. And then we all align in still our peak culture today and we have our peak values. So that we kind of thought first about what's the culture. And then we brainstormed probably like most found up startup teams. And we we're also lucky this is our second company. And so we had some money so we could take a little bit more time and actually think about the culture first. Mm -hmm. But then we thought about, hey, what business do we really want to build? And I remember we brainstormed on base when we had all those book charts and had a bunch of great ideas. And at some point, and actually I look back and I'm like, wow, they were all great ideas. Probably just because 2012 in hindsight was a great time to start any tech company. And we were also brainstorming names. One of the names we brainstormed was Datadog. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, wow, <laughs> that turned out well. Another idea was like, oh, let's do something like Shopify, maybe a little bit more for B2B, but let's just make commerce really easy. And pretty uh, every idea I look back, somebody built them well, you know, because it was just still such a nascent time for SaaS and cloud startups. And but ultimately, we kept coming back to this idea of G2. And, and like I said, you know, one, we chafed under the, the Gartner model and having to wait for magic quadrants. It took us nine years to get a Gartner report at Big Machines, 12 years to become a leader. So we, we just thought there could be something better. And then as consumers, ultimately, we came up with this G2 idea, which we said, hey, let's build a Yelp for business software. And in 2012, Yelp was quite hot. And it's still a great site. Yeah, but I like to say that was before Google went evil on them. But yeah, but this idea of user reviews, and we also just thought it was missing our industry. And again, going back to the traditional analysts, we always said it was like a restaurant critic that couldn't eat the food. Yeah, because the reality is none of the analysts could actually use the software in the right business context. You know, we're like, that's like the restaurant critic standing outside the door and like waiting for the customers. 
how does the food taste, right? We're like, why don't we just ask the people eating the food, right? AKA the real users of software. And we thought we could, you know, provide better, more real-time advice if we asked real users about their experiences with software. And shockingly to us is that it didn't exist for our industry because mm-hmm. in the consumer internet world, it had become obvious. And Bezos, I mentioned I'm an admirer, I read his biography, but I think they launched, Bezos and Amazon launched reviews for books way back in 1996. And it was interesting also what Bezos discovered, like the book publishers initially were really mad at him because yeah, they were like, Jeff, I thought you're trying to sell our books. Why do you allow people to say nasty things about them? But obviously Amazon, always a very data-driven company. Bezos went back in with data and said, look, a book that has just one negative review will sell more than a book with no reviews. In a book with 100 reviews, mostly positive, some negative, will you know sell 20% more. And uh, so we also just, you know, it's so proven in the consumer world that consumers need reviews. It builds trust, allows faster buying decisions. And we were just shocked it didn't exist for SaaS and cloud software. So it just seemed like one of those things that was meant to be built. And probably the final reason was discoverability mm-hmm. or SaaS. And the reality is like today on G2, there's over 100,000 apps. We also saw a lot of our early big machines customers I remember Rolls-Royce, they made truly big machines, big gas turbines. You know, we created configurators to help them. But I remember they they finally found us, became a customer, but they're like, wow, we wish we discovered you two years earlier. And we've been trying to build a software in-house. We didn't know vendors like you existed. And so, you know, we also, that was the other key goal is let's help business people, knowledge workers find the best apps. Mm-hmm. Because you know, the cool thing now with all these SaaS entrepreneurs, there's purpose-built apps for like every business problem, every industry, every use case. And if you can quickly discover them, you'll become more successful as a knowledge worker. Your business will become more successful. So we just thought it was this essential utility that our industry was missing. And on the topic there of discovery, as I mentioned in the intro there, I use G2 a lot. And my normal path to getting to G2 is from Google. So you mentioned there Google going evil on Yelp. Do you ever have any concerns about Google going evil on G2? And and has Google done any changes that has impacted G2's search ranking and search results? Well, to the latter question, yes. And I think any of us, you know, that play the SEO game, like Google changes algorithm all the time. And I do think generally for the better, you know, I think they are trying to make their search engine for good and, you know, produce, get the higher quality content to rank near the top. So yeah, and we're constantly, you know, aiming to produce better and better content. Yeah, I think that G2 flywheel has always been like the first category we tried was CRM software. I mentioned we were a Salesforce, a Siebel, an Oracle partner. And so we do the worst CRM world well. So we said, let's test it there. And then we'll usually find a category like CRM, right? Once we have enough reviews, we have good comparisons of let's say Salesforce and Dynamics, right? Then we do naturally start to rank on Google. And that's where Google certainly does good, right? So we're continuously working on that, you know, and, and we'll probably continue to forever because, and I think that's as consumer, right? Most of us still shop on Google, mm-hmm. start there. And that's certainly true for business software. And that's, you know, and we do rank for most of our category trends. We always aim, aim to rank in the top three. So that's how most buyers do discover us. And do I have some fear? Yes. You know, obviously Google's on a lot of categories, right? Travel, local, where they then, you know, put their own reviews tooling on top of the third-party site. So do I have some fear of that? Yes. You know, uh, who knows when they might do it. Yeah. And obviously also the key, I think the reason Yelp is still successful, we're really aiming to build our own brand. Yeah. And I think our dream, Brett, someday you come to g2.com instead of Google. And, and I think the other disruptive force out there now is AI, you know, and I think everyone's talking about it, right? With Bing partnering with OpenAI, where they're trying to change the interface, right? From just that search box 
to now having a chat GPT like interactive experience to find information on the web. And I'm sure you've tried it, Brett. I've signed up for the $20 a month and I'm like, it's brilliant for my own work, you know, because I can just write draft stuff faster, find information faster. So I do think that, you know, may change the game, right, for all of us. And at G2, we are experimenting with AI ourselves because I think that may really change this whole Google search paradigm, you know, and we think can make it much easier for software buyers to discover information from G2 through a chat GPT kind of uh, Q&A interface. So uh, I think it's exciting to have an industry and that may finally change, you know, how dependent so many of us are on Google. Yeah, it's a wild time just, you know, even hearing that there's a challenger to Google search and that Google search could change. I think just in my brain, it was just default that Google search was always going to be there. And yeah, it wasn't, it was going to just, you know, keep getting better and better, but that was it. Then all of a sudden now they're talking about, you know, Microsoft and Bing really being a challenger, Google being concerned about that. I think it's just a, a fascinating time to, uh, to be in tech in general. Sure. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Now, I'd love to ask you a bit more about the traditional research analyst firm approach. So we work with a lot of software companies, uh, a lot of them early stage, and we have a lot of conversations with them about you know using firms like Gartner or Forrester. And what's always turned me off is that it's just pay to play. And it you know, just feels very dirty. Um, it feels like almost like a, a black hat tactic, but somehow it's just widely accepted. And it seems like no one really talks about that and that idea that it is largely pay for play. So can you just talk us through, you know, what that traditional research analyst firm business model looks like? And then I'd love to talk about the G2 business model from there. Sure. And certainly like at Big Machines, you know, we we did learn how to play with that traditional research firm model. And like I said, ultimately we were recognized as a leader by Gartner, Forrester, et cetera. And I think, yeah, still a lot of enterprise software startups it's still important, right? Because, you know, there's, especially Fortune 500 CIOs, a lot of them will disqualify you, right? If you're at least not in the analyst report. So that's why it's always been important. Of course, I think sites like G2, the internet's changing that. You know, I think the importance is lessening, but it's still there. And certainly what we learned, you know, and it's not like black and white pay to play. It's also true. The analysts will say, hey, even if you don't pay us, you know, if you're good enough, we'll include you. That's true. But, but obviously by paying, you gain access, right? And and so we always paid, you know, you pay for strategy days, you pay for annual subscriptions, you pay for them to speak at your conference. And, you know, and yes, they can give you some good perspectives, but frankly, I was not as an entrepreneur, I got better perspectives from my customers. I, I love listening to my customers. Honestly, I, I prefer that to listening to analysts, you know, so, but I think at the end of the day, I remember big machines, like at the end, we were probably spending, you know, 150,000 a year uh, for analyst access. And that certainly, yeah, it didn't feel great, you know, so where I felt like I had to do it and, yeah, to be fully represented. And that certainly didn't feel good. I think that model is still out there today, you know, and, and ultimately, like I said, if you're really focused on selling a big enterprise, I'd still tell an entrepreneur to do it, but it also takes years, right? Because even if you start pitching the analysts, right, they tend to only update the reports one or two years. And you know, by the time they create your category, it might be, like I said, big machines took us nine years till they really launched CPQ research. So 
it's just super frustrating, right? Costs a lot of money, a lot of time, takes forever. And that's where our dream is, you know, sites like G2 win and just customer voice. And at some point, all you have to do is talk to your customers. And as an entrepreneur, if you don't love talking to your customers, you should probably find a new job. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think we all, I think any good entrepreneur, you live and die by user feedback, right? Going back to Bezos, customer obsessed, the number one Amazon leadership principle. But you you want and have to be customer obsessed because that's why you start a company, right? You you want to create a better mousetrap, a better solution for your customer. And that's what we hope happens with G2, right? Customer voice wins and the best apps win faster, right? The, the ones that customers love the most. In some ways, it seems so obvious. And in that sense, it's kind of a, I think a bit of like a legacy thing, right? That our B2B tech industry is still so dependent on this analyst model versus just being 100% customer obsessed. And can you talk to me about the G2 marketplace and, and what you do there to build trust in the marketplace? Yes. And trust is very important for the G2 marketplace. And we've also you know, seen that we've learned from the consumer review world, you know, going back to Yelp. And I still use Yelp. I like Yelp, right? I trust it overall. But we've also all heard the horror stories like the New York Times about fake reviews, fake reviews on Yelp, fake reviews on Google. And uh, I think that's the one downside, right? And we've seen that at G2 also. Once you become more influential to buyers for software or restaurants or whatever, right? It also creates a big incentive for fraud. And yeah, there's all those stories where, you know, like, uh, so like a restaurant will blame their competitor, you know, or like the uncle of the restaurant owner writes a great review. So there's all those concerns in B2C reviews that are also true in B2B. And so what we try to do from day one at G2 is really make trust a priority. And we think the most important thing is to know the professional identity of the user of the person writing the review. And so originally we only allowed sign up by LinkedIn profile mm -hmm. and Brett, I'm sure, you know, you and I, like, I think we all live on LinkedIn, right? I know it's the first mm -hmm. thing when I start a new company, but I'm ready to launch it. I'll update my LinkedIn profile first. Mm -hmm. And so the good news is everyone in our industry does that, right? So it's a very up-to-date, real professional identity. And not only does it let us know you're really Brett, you know, but it also gives us professional context about you, what industry are you in, what size company do you work for, what's your job role? All of which yeah, provides interesting additional data to put a G2 review in context. And so one, yeah, we continue that. One, we verify everyone's professional identity so we know who they really are. And then obviously we can algorithmically catch the really obvious fraud. You know, like if you try to review your own company, Brett, or competitors, we'll automatically take those down. And you know, we do also have a research QA team. And yes, we're working to automate that, but we do end up rejecting over 30% of reviews that are rejected, that are rejected on G2 because either we suspect fraud or frankly, there's really low quality. And so it's a continual game, you know? And I don't think we're catching 100% of the bad reviews, but I like to think, you know, we're catching 98, 99% of them, but it's continuous. It's a continuous challenge, right? I think for any site that's, uh, you know, uses you generate content, how to make sure it's quality, it's trusted. And, uh, you know, we're gonna keep working on it. And AI does really help because AI can do a bit of initial scan of, hey, does this appear fake or real? But then, like I said, we still have a real human validate every review. Yeah, and I'm sure it's a cat and mouse game there, right? Like I'm, I'm sure law enforcement faces something similar. They face that in cybersecurity that you probably you know, close one loophole and then someone finds a new loophole and you're just constantly trying to you know, beat them as they, they come up with different innovative ideas, I would assume, right? That's true. And also I think the FTC has actually you know, put out like official guidelines you know, about reviews because it has become an area of, you know, sadly significant fraud and deception. Mm -hmm. 
And now there's industry consortia you know, that we're also a part of that include companies like Google and Yelp. Because I think everyone, I think, you know, obviously it's bad for the internet, right? And especially review sites to have fake content out there. So I think we're all all trying to win that arms race. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to talk and, and dive deeper into category creation. You know, that's a big thing that we talk about on, of course, the Category Visionaries podcast. And I know G2 is very influential in that process. So could you just give us a behind the scenes look like what it looks like when G2 builds a new category and how you think about category creation and rolling out new categories? Yes. And so at G2, we have over 2,100 different software categories now. As I mentioned, when we started 10 years ago, we only had one, which was CRM software. And so in terms of, you know, we try to be thoughtful about creating new categories and we have a research team. You know, we have over 50 researchers that own different sets. We call it G2 taxonomy. And so there's one researcher that owns, let's say, sales tech, another one for MarTech, another one for AI, et cetera. And they then work with the vendors, with entrepreneurs to make a judgment on when do and don't we create a new category. And one of the most basic rules, and some entrepreneurs are like, oh, I have this really special thing. I'm a category of one. <laughs> and of course, that never works. And the reason it doesn't work is that's not what buyers want, right? Buyers of software, you at least want, let's say, three choices, right? If not more. So I think one criterion I always discuss with entrepreneurs, hey, no, you really need at least five to 10 competitors in your category. You know, otherwise, buyers won't be interested in it, right? And frankly, as a vendor, you won't be interested in it either because there's no demand. And so, you know, it's a bit of a judgment call. When is there a tipping point? And I do remember over the years, we've created many new categories. Like one of the most, that's become the most exciting is conversational intelligence. Mm -hmm. And obviously like well-known leaders like Gong and Chorus, which was, you know, now acquired by Zoom Info. But I remember conversational intelligence, like, you know, six or seven years ago, it didn't exist. You know, Gong and Chorus were just starting up. And then, you know, we, we do get a lot of input from vendors because, you know, I remember I talked to the, Gong founder Ami, the Chorus founder Roy, and now our research team are having these conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then obviously we start to see a pattern. Wow, all of a sudden there's five or 10 startups funded in this area of what's now called conversational intelligence. And, you know, and then we also work with the vendors to define the right questions for the buyers, because also for each category, you know, we define a unique feature set and we try to keep it somewhat high level, but let's say there's 20 key features for conversational intelligence that you really need, you know, things like call recording, AI, transcripting. And then we also ask for reviewers to rate those products against those category features to validate if the vendor really does it. And then also to compare how good, you know, is the vendor on each of these features. Yeah. And I think we haven't found a way to let AI do it, you know, maybe someday, but it's still human research, uh, dialogue. And obviously other things that also help things like Google trends, you know, we can start to see, okay, how many people are searching for this type of a term. That can be another, I think, good clue. Like once buyers are really showing a lot of interest and obviously like an obvious one today would be like, you know, chatbot software. Obviously everyone's looking for that, right? So then it gets to this crescendo and clearly there's more than three vendors now trying to build, you know, AI powered chatbots. So then you realize, oh, wow, this is coming to a crescendo. And what I do love over the years, we've seen many, you know, also robotic process automation with companies like UiPath Automation Anywhere, like that one also didn't exist five or six years ago. And at G2, frankly, we try to create them first. Yeah, because unlike the traditional analyst, they have to hire an analyst. That analyst has to be able to generate enough revenue, right? Since our platform is all digital, like, you know, yes, we have some human work, but, you know, for us, it's, let's say, one man month of work to create a new category, and then it just starts flying from there. So we can do it much faster 
and better than the traditional analysts. And, and we're really proud to have created, you know, many great categories. And then, you know, let's always pull a few years later, conversational intelligence, RPA, all of a sudden we've helped create five unicorns. And that's really cool. Yeah, that's amazing. And how many categories do you create per year, roughly? And I would say, like I said, we have 2,100 in total. And if anything, yeah, it's growing exponentially. So I would probably say, you know, it's probably about three or 400 a year right now. And I think AI, we're doing work on our AI taxonomy right now because these whole areas emerge and all of a sudden there's so many flavors of AI. We, like everyone else, are trying to make sense of it. And ultimately that leads to many new AI categories on G2. And what do you think that's going to look like for the buyer, you know, five years from today? Are we going to be in this world where buyers just have to navigate through this insane number of categories? Because it kind of seems like at, at a certain point, then that defeats the purpose of having a category. If there's like way too many categories to choose from, then that, yeah, kind of defeats the purpose. So how do you think about that like future and what that's going to look like if there's just going to be more and more categories? Yeah. And I do think the categories are going to keep growing. And I agree, arguably that's bad for the buyer, you know, because who can keep track in their head of 2,500 categories? No one. Like, I don't even know anymore, you know, like what categories we have and don't have on G2. So I do think AI is also the solve, you know, my view, because also that traditional Google search paradigm we talked earlier, that obviously works well with category terms, you know, because those also become Google keywords then. You know, where like conversational intelligence is in a Google keyword, right? We have a page for it. The vendors have a page for it. And I do think AI is going to change that. And we think, you know, and we we just launched an AI Monty as we do think it's going to be a much better way to navigate a site like G2 with tons of data, tons of categories. And then frankly, the beauty, I think, of an AI chatbot interface, and we just launched our AI Monty on our homepage. You can see it, mm-hmm. you know, but it'll be a different way to navigate because you no longer have to know the category name. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. in that world, it could just be like, Hey, I want a better way to kind of track and manage my sales force now, which is probably what most people want. Like most people probably, maybe now it's so well known. People think of like a gong or chorus, but you know, a few years ago, it's just like, Hey, I just want to make my sales team more productive. I want to be able to coach my sales reps better. I'd love to be in all of their conversations, but as a sales manager, I can't be right. I'm managing eight reps. Mm -hmm. And so I think what you can do now with the chat AI interface is just you know, list those needs, list those challenges, and the magic of tools like ChatGPT, we didn't automatically match you to be like, oh, by the way, you have to better manage your reps, to better coach your reps, to see how they're doing on every call. By the way, there's this whole category of software, and there are tools like Gong, Chorus, et cetera. And so we think that's really going to be, make it so much better for the buyer to discover the apps, right? And I think that's not just data on G2, that's the whole internet, right? Because We've all had to be good at Google search, but you kind of got to know what you're looking for. I think now with AI, the AI bot, the AI Monty will go find that data for you and then can actually tell you, Brett, what categories you should be shopping in and based on your company size, your industry, your use case, and likely recommend based on the data we've captured, what's the best app for you. And that's where I'm just so excited for the future of G2 and just the whole internet, right? Because I think AI is just going to be such a better interface, make it so much easier to discover the best software for your business. Yeah, that's insanely exciting. And I can see how that'll have an impact because it sounds like at that point, then the buyer is really searching more based on jobs to be done. And then the category is recommended based on that. 
Whereas now it's kind of hard, I think, for buyers, right? Like they have to know these terms and I don't know about G2's categories, but a lot of those Gartner categories are, you know, four letters and these, you know, complex phrases that no one's going to use normally. Yeah, I pass, DAS, and those of us that are SAS nerds, you know, like, yeah, we know them. But yeah, for most people in the world, like no one's looking for like a pass, you know, like, oh, and you're like, you know, it's a platform as a service. You're like, oh, that's a very easy way to like build an app as a business user. Like, if you're deep in our industry, you know that, but you never know that, right? Whereas now, I think in the future, you'll just be able, instead of searching for pass, you'll be able to say, hey, I'm trying to like build my own apps. I need an easy way for business analysts to be able to, you know, configure their own app without having to be a coder. And then, yeah, and I think what's going to happen then, the AI Monty will recommend, oh, by the way, did you know there's pass tools or Airtable or, you know, that actually help you do that? You know, so I think it's, yeah, it's going to be just so exciting for software buyers and really anyone seeking knowledge on the internet, right? And Google's been great. Like I've been lucky it's been there my whole career, but I think AI is going to make it so much better, right? And that we'll be able to guide software buyers so much better to the apps based on their business problems, right? And not based on these category names. Yeah, it's amazing. It's so exciting. Now, last question, because I know we're uh, we're over time here. So I'm sure you speak with a lot of founders and, and a lot of vendors who say, you know, I don't fit into these existing categories. I, I need a new category. And, and I know you touched on that with, you know, you, you need some more competition to do that. But what other advice do you have for founders that feel like they don't fit into these existing boxes and, and want to create a new category? What should they do? Yeah. And I think and usually what I recommend to founders, one thing is usually easier to first draft off an existing category. And I'll just share my experience, big machines, right? We were actually creating CPQ. It didn't exist yet. And honestly, we almost went bankrupt and that took like 10 years. And then the second one, Steelbrick, as he was a few years later, but CPQ existed, lots of people were buying, right? So we just said, hey, we're just next gen CPQ and drafted off existing demand in the existing category. And honestly, that's just so much easier if you can do it. And then I think one other interesting story though, if you do really have passion, you want to create a new category. I remember I was recently talking to Songram, he was one of the co-founders of Terminus. Mm -hmm. And now he's leading GTM partners that advise on go-to-market strategies. But he, uh, when he's building Terminus and they helped create ABM, account-based marketing. But I remember he went to a bunch of competitors, including John Miller, who's now with Demandbase. You know, he was starting his own ABM vendor, but he said he went to 10 of his competitors and said, this was like in you know, 2015, he said, hey guys, let's all call it ABM. Let's all call it account-based marketing. And in hindsight, that was brilliant, right? Because again, now account-based marketing has become huge. And now we have like six subcategories like ABM execution, ABM ads, et cetera. But I think that's also a clever, courageous strategy, right? Like as founders, usually we're like, oh, I don't want to talk to my competitors, right? Like, but I think if you really want to build a category, I love that idea of actually recruit some of your competitors, you know, especially the up-and-comers because and I also learned that in CPQ, you know, obviously day-to-day you kind of hate your competitors and, you know, because you're like, oh, I'm losing deals to them. But then you also realize this is true. Like when we were building Steelbrick, there was a competitor Aptus, and obviously they wanted to beat us, we wanted to beat them. But then, you know, we both helped popularize the terms of CPQ, configure price quote, QTC, quote to cash. And we both had big dreams at Dreamforce ultimately, you know, marketing, quote to cash, marketing CPQ. And yes, like we wanted to beat each other, but we also tremendously helped each other. And we had like four competitors doing that, you know? So I think also kind of that realization, hey, if you really want to do category building, you actually need some competitors. In some ways, you want to team with them to create the category. And that's that's a bit counterintuitive. And that's what I actually tell most founders. And they would work with us at G2, right? If you just come, say, category one, we'll say, no, thank you. But if you come with five to 10 well-funded, cool competitors, 
will say hell yes. You know, so I, I love that strategy of actually align with your competitors if you really think you're going to create a new category. Amazing. I love it. And such actionable and useful advice for founders listening in. All right. I know we are over time here, so we can wrap. I, I'd love to keep you on and keep asking you questions, but we'll have to save that for the next interview for part two. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat. I really appreciate it. If founders want to get in touch with you or just follow along with G2 as you continue to build, where should they go? Yeah. Well, one, go to g2.com, check out our new AI Monty. Two, Godard, G-O-D-A-R-D at G2.com. Feel free to email me. And three, LinkedIn is always great. Godard Abel. You know, connect with me on LinkedIn because I love nothing more than meeting my fellow entrepreneurs and you know comparing notes. So please do reach out. And thank you so much, Brett, for hosting. Really fun conversation. No problem at all. Thanks so much. 